0: that you weren't really good at it at all. Now, I would never claim to be an artist. In fact, usually when I'm trying to make an illustration, say for Bible class, it's, I'm, I'm stuck with stick figures and maybe arrows, simply because those are easy. If I were to actually try and draw something and then compare it to, say, something, even my daughters that my daughters Lydia and, and Nora would draw, I would look very quickly and go, I am not good at this. This is not one of the things that I have been blessed with. My guess is you've, you've had the same experience, perhaps in, in sports, right? You, you thought you were pretty good at, at baseball or, or basketball and football until you met somebody who was a lot better than you, and then you quickly realized, I may be okay, but I'm not that great. And it doesn't take long for you to realize, you're a lot better than I am. Perhaps you've had the same experience, say, in the workplace, right? You understood your responsibilities, you were doing your job and thought you were doing all right until you saw somebody who did the same thing you did, just a whole lot better. Right? They were more successful. Perhaps they were able to close more accounts. They they were just able to do things that you weren't able to do no matter how hard you tried. You've been there, right? You've had that experience where you quickly realize, yes, I might be good at something, but I'm not great. And I can easily think of people who are far better. I imagine at the point in time where Jesus was teaching his disciples at the Sermon on the Mount, his disciples may have had a similar feeling. They knew they were good, they, they knew what God's law had commanded them. They, they knew how to obey. They knew the laws that God expected them to keep. They would look and say, I'm, I'm okay. Until the Pharisees walked around. You remember the Pharisees? The Pharisees were like a group of super Jews. Right? They, they looked at God's law and they said, not only are we going to keep all the commands that God has given in his covenant, but what we're going to do is we're going to add another say 600 or so laws to it, and by doing that, we're going to be super righteous in God's eyes, right? We are going to be really good, because we're not only keeping God's laws, but we're going to add to that and and make things even more strict for us. And so by the time of Jesus, a Pharisee was regarded as one who was very pious and and very righteous, right? They, They strove really hard to keep God's Old Testament law by going above and beyond. And they knew it. You can imagine if you know you're good at something, it's easy to begin to look at others who aren't as good at it and, well, at least know you're better than them. And when that happens, it's easy for you to look down on them. And the Pharisees would do that. The danger Jesus recognized in dealing with the Pharisees was that they thought because they were able, in their eyes, to keep the Old Testament law, plus whatever laws they had added on, that they thought that because they were good, that they were good with God. That somehow their ability to, to keep God's laws, from their perspective, righteously, enabled them to have this special relationship with God where they were going to end up in heaven because of how good they were. And the danger Jesus recognized, not only for the Pharisees, but for his own disciples was, is if you began to believe that ultimately where you were going to go is what the church ended up calling work righteousness. That I become righteous before God by what I do. And so Jesus was not only concerned for the souls of the Pharisees, he was concerned for the souls of his disciples, who looked at the Pharisees and would say, boy, they're really good. And so in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus says. It's the verse right before what's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5. He said, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus would, would give the Pharisees this. They worked really hard at being good. But then he dropped a bomb on them that said, if your righteousness doesn't surpass even what the Pharisees are doing, the kingdom of heaven is outside of your grasp. Because as good as the Pharisees would claim to be, the Pharisees were not holy. They were not perfect. They were not just like God was. And as a result, as good as they might have been, their good wasn't good enough. And so Jesus sought to teach that not only to the Pharisees, but to his disciples. And he does so not by looking at big sins, like saying, okay, well, you've managed to keep this. He went to the little sins. Sins that would have been easy for the Pharisees. Sins that are easy for you and I to simply overlook or to dismiss and not give a second thought to. Listen to where he starts. Jesus says, for I <clears throat> You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So far, the Pharisees would agree, right? In fact, the disciples would agree. My guess is, you and I would agree. Oh, fifth commandment, you shall not murder. Managed to do that one. I haven't killed anybody. And then Jesus says this. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Rekah, is answerable to to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of hell. In other words, Jesus was looking and saying, it isn't just a matter of, by your actions, keeping this commandment. You've managed not to kill anybody. Good for you. Now let's look a little bit deeper. Because the fifth commandment doesn't just apply to our actions, it applies to our thoughts, it applies to the motivations of our heart. And there Jesus said to to his disciples and to the Pharisees, You haven't kept this commandment it doesn't take long in your own relationships to real quickly realize that you and i don't keep this commandment just think of how we react when when someone annoys us or or even angers us right for that moment there might be that flash of white hot anger in my heart that's hatred i'm upset over what they have done and i'm about ready to lash out and maybe maybe we're able to, to keep to keep ourselves under control, right, then that never comes out. And it's there for an instant, and it's gone, and I react in a way that would have never, ever betrayed that that anger was there. But God saw it. Right, perhaps we, 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 we tamp it down, and it lies smoldering, and it turns into this grudge now that I hold against somebody, that I always question their motives, or why they're doing what they're doing, but still there, isn't it? Or perhaps that that anger that existed just in my heart shows itself in a flash of words and actions that betrays exactly what was going on in my heart. You can think of Cain and Abel. Remember Cain and Abel, very beginning of the Bible? Adam and Eve have two sons, They teach him to worship the Lord. Cain and Abel both bring offerings to the Lord. Abel's was accepted because it was brought out of faith that Abel was expressing a joy and a thanksgiving to God because of all that God had done for him. Cain, more just going through the motions, saying, God doesn't accept his offering. And what did Cain get? Angry. He was angry at God, he was angry at Abel before Cain even does anything to Abel, do you remember what God's warning was? Be careful, Abel. Because that sin is, is lurking in your heart, and if left unchecked, leads to sinful actions. And what happens? The next thing we read is Cain killing Abel. Not because all of a sudden... Cain decided he was going to break the fifth commandment but because he had already broken the fifth commandment in his heart and what came next were actions. Jesus confronts his disciples, he confronts the Pharisees, he confronts you and me and says, before you begin to think that you're good in God's eyes, maybe take a closer look. And what we quickly realize is that Boy, it's really hard to be a child of God. It's really hard to be good in God's eyes when simply the motivations of my heart and anger make me guilty of breaking the fifth commandment. Then he gives some examples of what that might look like, right? He, he talks about if you're, if you're angry with your brother, or if you, your brother has something against you, before you even come to worship, right, take care of it. If it's an enemy, that, an adversary that you have an issue with, be reconciled to him as quickly as possible. Right? Because the last thing you want is for that, that thing that has come between you, where there could be anger and hatred to suddenly come between you and God. And he doesn't stop there, though. He goes on. He says, <clears throat> You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. Again, the Pharisees could have been ones that would look at that and go, well, I haven't slept with anyone who isn't my spouse. I've nailed that commandment. What's next? But Jesus says, but I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Jesus isn't just looking at the actions. The things that would be easy for you and I to say, I've kept the Ten Commandments. He looks at the heart, doesn't he? He looks at the heart and says, You've looked at someone with impure thoughts. It's as if you've already committed adultery with them, even if that's simply right here. Think of how easy that is in today's world. Did you happen to catch the Super Bowl halftime show? If that wasn't an, a, a temptation from the devil to impure thoughts, think of all the the websites that you can very quickly get to with just a number of clicks. That will fill your heart and your head with impure thoughts. Right? You you read it in books. You see it around you everywhere. That as God looks at you, he isn't just saying, boy, you've managed not to sleep with someone who isn't your spouse. He says, I'm looking at your heart. And what you and I quickly realize is that as righteous and as good as you and I might think we are, our righteousness is just like the shirt I had for the children's message. Only probably with a lot more holes and a lot dirtier. Right, that you and I would have to, exist, have to admit before the Almighty God, I haven't kept my heart clean and pure. I haven't kept my heart from anger. I may be able to say that I've kept every last one of the Ten Commandments in my actions. But I haven't kept my heart from sin. I begin to look at the Christian life that my God has called me to, and he says, what I want from you as a child of God is perfection. What I want from you is, is righteousness, just like I am holy and righteous. And what it doesn't take long for you and I to figure out is, that's not only hard, that's impossible for you and me. It is absolutely impossible for you and me, as it was for the Pharisees, as it was for Jesus' disciples, to live that perfect righteous life. And to seal the deal, he goes on, doesn't he? He talks about divorce and says, in in Jesus' day, you could basically write a reason for divorce for anything you could come up with. Kind of like today. And he says there's only one reason that's acceptable in God's eyes, marital unfaithfulness, because at that point, the marriage is already broken. The divorce is just simply expressing what's already happened. He would look and he'd say, boy, if, if, as, as children of God, your word and what you say should be so truthful and honest that you don't ever need to take an oath or swear before God or your mother or your mother's grave or anything else. That as a child of God, you should simply be able to say yes or no and people will take you at your word because that's how honest and truthful you are. boy, we begin to look at our lives and all Jesus is doing is poking one hole after another in our own righteousness. Because it can happen to children of God, can't it? It wasn't just Pharisees who began to rely on their own works and say, boy, I'm right and good before God because not only am I keeping these Ten Commandments, but all of Old Testament law, but I'm adding another six or seven hundred on top of that and I'm good! as children of God who recognize what our savior has done for us it is easy for us to begin to look at others and say not only am i forgiven i do a pretty good job of keeping god's laws and what jesus does in his word is he comes and he begins to poke holes in our pride and the arrogance that would seem to think that we would seem to think that i'm good enough i'm good with god And what our Savior would say is, you're not even close. You are a sinful, rebellious human being who in pride thinks you're better than you are, and if you were honest with yourself, would be appalled at how sinful you are. That's what God's word does to us, doesn't it? What God's word ends up doing is Forcing us to be honest with who we are. I like to golf. When I was a younger golfer, I wouldn't always count all my strokes. Penalty strokes, eh. I'd take a drop, but why count it? Until I was encouraged to say if you really want to know how good a golfer you are or how bad a golfer you are, count your strokes. All of them. And what I quickly realized is at one point I thought I was an eh, okay golfer. Then I counted my strokes, and guess what? I wasn't a good golfer. My score would tell me that. The more you and I interact with God's word, and we see God's law proclaimed, and God pokes his holes in our righteousness, the more you and I have to confront the fact that we're sinful that we're not as good as we think we are. Which is good. It's good for you and I because what it ends up forcing you and I to realize is that we can't save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. What we need is someone to save us. And we come, when we come to that realization of how sinful we are, when we come to the realization of our absolute inability to keep God's laws, to keep ourselves from sin, not only in our actions, but in our thoughts, in our words, in the motivations of our heart, where we end up with is exactly where God wants us, right? In that position of despair where I have nothing to offer God because I realize God needs nothing I can give him, and in the position where I realize I can't even offer good things to God because everything is full of holes and tainted by my sin. And it's at that moment that God reveals to us his plan, right? How he sends his son here on earth to do what you and I completely fail to do each and every day. He sends his son Jesus and he lives a perfect life. He's perfect not only in his in his actions but he's perfect in his thoughts he's righteous in his words he's always honest and truthful right in his relationships even with his enemies he's loving and compassionate and kind and honest right in how he interacts and he views the people around him men and women it's always with pure thoughts because it's something you and I aren't able to do. And as we saw in our children's message, what our Savior does is he comes to do what you and I weren't able to do so that he could give his perfection to you and to me. So that as God looks at us, he no longer sees that the tattered remains of what we thought was righteousness, but he puts real righteousness and perfection on us. Not our own, but, but Jesus. And then he hears God's demands for sin. And he says, what sin deserves is separation. What sin deserves is death. What sin deserves is punishment. And so Jesus takes all of our failures, all of our sin, all of our rebelliousness, all of the the sin that we've done in, in, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, in our hearts, he takes all of them and he says, these are now mine. And he goes to the cross. And there on the cross, God gives Jesus exactly what our sins deserved, right? What sin deserved was separation from God. And so Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? The answer? Your sin and mine. There on the cross, God or God declares the wages of sin is death. So there on the cross, what happens? Jesus dies. Because that's what your sin and my sin demanded. But he doesn't stay dead. Right? He, He rises from the grave so that you and I are able to say, Death and sin and the devil have been completely defeated. Our sin has been washed away. We are forgiven. It means you and I are able to stand before God not with our own righteousness and not with our own sin. But we stand before God forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of our Savior. So that God looks at each one of us and says, I see you as a perfect child of God because you've been saved from your sin and clothed in your Savior's perfection. Man, we hear those words and think of how that begins to change your life now as a child of God, huh? We see what our Savior has done for us. We know how sinful we are. We know ourselves well. And we see what our God has done for us in order to to forgive our sins. And now I look at the things God has asked me to do and how he's asked me to live, right? In these words, right, that I... I'm careful with anger. I'm careful with how I look and interact with people. I'm careful with the words I speak. Because all of those reflect who I am as a child of God. And now, forgiven, I strive to to live as a child of God, recognizing, am I still going to screw up? You bet. There are going to be times in my life where the devil causes me to stumble and just like that, I I, I fall into sin, and in those moments, what do I do as a child of God? I repent, I go back to my Savior, and my Savior says, you are forgiven, you are still perfect in my eyes because I was perfect for you. And it's as if he picks us up and dusts us off and says, now go live as a child of God. It enables you and I to do the impossible. Our Savior, his perfect life, and his forgiveness enables you and I to do the impossible, to live as a perfect child of God. And that's what he calls you to do. To go out into the world and live as a perfect child of God so that one day, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe not for 50 years, one day your Savior himself will put on your head a crown and he will say, well done good and faithful child not because of you but because the Savior came and did it for you he's done the impossible for you, so go do the impossible, live as a child of God confident in your forgiveness and confident of your home in heaven amen And the peace of God, which goes beyond our understanding, will guard and will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Our Savior Lutheran Church is located on the south side of Birmingham off Highway 280. We are on Dunavant Valley Road, about three-quarters of a mile east of Treetop Family Adventure and Sports Blast. Our Sunday services begin at 1015 with Sunday School and Bible Class at 9 o'clock. We welcome visitors and hope to see you soon. For more information, please visit our website at OurSaviorBirmingham.com. Click on Sermons at the top of the page for a copy of today's service folder. You can also find us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.